thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to this week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty, and I think today we're going to have a rip-snorter of a good time together and uh, just continue to ratchet up that sense of betrayal that's come from the Supreme Court and its abuse of the judicial power, its abuse of the doctrine of stare decisis. I just think today will be the capstone of the whole thing. It'll be the cherry and the whipped cream on the top of the Sunday that goes with the last several episodes. Now, if you're just now tuning in to this little series that I've been doing on the law and the Constitution and the focus the last several weeks, particularly on the judicial power, I'm going to repeat a few things uh, just so that you can be brought up to speed. And of course, uh, repetition even for those who've been listening through the whole series is always good to get things back in our mind, keep things fresh in our mind, cement them in our mind. And so, I'm going to start out with saying that stare decisis abbreviates a, a legal expression that says that basically decisions made should be stuck with. We, we're going to stick with what we've said in the past. And that's what gives importance to precedent, to decisions made by the Supreme Court in the past. We also noted, though, that this doctrine of stare decisis is not to be found in the Constitution, it's not found in the Bill of Rights. And it's not even anything that's logically necessary to uh, the interpretation of the Constitution or anything that's constitutionally logically necessary, okay? So we've been talking about the fact that the doctrine of stare decisis developed in connection with the common law and how the common law developed our understanding of what law was over time as new factual situations arose and we began to develop principles. For instance, we've talked about the principle of offer and acceptance and payment. You know, if I offer to buy something and you provide it, I'm obligated to pay for it, right? If you provide something else, then you've made a counter offer and then I can decide to accept it or not. And if I don't, accept it. I don't have to pay for your counteroffer. If I do accept it, I have to pay for your counteroffer. So those are those principles, and we work them out in different factual situations as to how they would apply. And so it was said in a sense that the common law developed. But the Constitution is not common law. It is a fixed, static, statutory, positive enactment of the states. Okay, so in a sense, it's no different from a statute the General Assembly adopted in the last legislative session. Now, we've been talking the last couple, uh, last week, I guess it was, in particular, about some of the things Clarence Thomas said, and we're going to pick up on those today. But I, I want to set the context with this quote that I've given before, which is from his concurring opinion in Gamble versus United States, a 2019 decision. So this is recent stuff. This is not old stuff I'm giving you from back in the dark ages. He said this, that the court's typical formulation of stare decisis does not comport with our judicial duty under Article 3. And he said that for this reason. 
Whereas the common law courts of England discerned and defined many legal principles in the first instance. That's what we were just talking about. That the common law was developing principles that for somebody to be bound to pay for something, uh, there, there has to be an offer and there has to be an acceptance. There, there can't be any donative intent. How do we distinguish between a contract and a gift or a donation? So the common law was developing all of those principles in the first instance. But he goes on to say the Constitution charged federal courts primarily with applying a limited body of written laws articulating those legal principles. He's saying that the Constitution was really articulating common law principles. That's why I've said over and over, I'll say it again until I'm blue in the face and you've got it fixed in your head. If you don't understand the common law, you do not understand the Constitution. And then Clarence Thomas finished that sentence with this. This shift from an understanding of common law and the development of common law and the courts articulating these unwritten principles of law that transcended anything that had been positively enacted or created by mankind, natural law, divine law. He said that shift from that kind of understanding to what we have nowadays, quote, profoundly affects the application of stare decisis today. Now, as I said at the top of the podcast, he said this, this, this doctrine of stare decisis doesn't comport with our judicial duty under Article 3. And now today I'm going to explain to you why he says the doctrine of stare decisis does not comport with their duty. And here's what he said. Quote, the court currently views stare decisis as a, quote, principle of policy end quote, that balances several factors to decide whether the scales tip in favor of overruling precedent. Now, let's just stop right there. He just said that the way we do and formulate and apply stare decisis is in the nature of a principle of policy. Now, what body under the U.S. Constitution is supposed to make policy? Well, if you've been listening to us for any time, you know it is the legislative branch. The judicial branch, the judicial power, is merely to decide how the established enacted law and policy applies to the particular facts involving particular parties. It cannot, does not, make policy. It's not within the nature of the judicial power. It's the same as saying somebody that's sterile can produce children. No, they can't. And the judicial power under the Constitution, limited to cases and controversies under Article 3, cannot make law. It applies existing law to the facts of a particular case involving particular parties. He goes on and he begins to explain to us what it is they're doing. He, he says, quote, among these factors... Now that, that in itself says something to you, doesn't it? What does a legislature do? They look at all these different factors and they balance them. Well, if we do this, this could happen, but this could happen, and then that could happen. And, and so we're having to judge and weigh all these different factors to come up with what's really the right policy here. So let me continue. I'll repeat it again. Among these factors are the workability of the standard. Well, are people able to figure out how to apply the standard or not? See, that's the problem with Roe versus Wade. That's the problem with Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Is the standard workable? Well, we said that you can't create a substantial burden. Well, what in the heck is a substantial burden? It depends on 
you know, how easily well you can carry a burden, I guess, right? And that could depend based on the person or the judges. Oh, my. Another factor, he goes on. The antiquity of the precedent. Well, we got it wrong a long time ago, so I guess we ought to just keep getting it wrong. Or, well, we only got it wrong two years ago, so maybe we should reverse it. Oh, but if you'll remember, a couple of podcasts ago, I talked about, I hadn't figured out what makes something well settled, what the point of antiquity is. We reversed separate but equal 70 years after it was, was done, but, you know, gosh, we, uh, we won't reverse Roe versus Wade after 48 years. We reversed the decisions about same-sex marriage not being a federal issue in over 43 years, so... I, I don't I don't know when something's settled, when antiquity kicks in enough. And then he talks about the reliance interest at stake. Well, we've been doing it so, wrong so long uh, that a lot of people have kind of adapted their, their lives to this way, and boy, this would sure mess things up if we actually got it right now. Remember, that's exactly what I said they said in Planned Parenthood versus Casey. For two decades, people have organized their lives determine their views of themselves and their places in society in reliance on abortion. Well, sure, we may have gotten Roe versus Wade wrong in 1973, but here it is, 1992. And people have so adjusted themselves to what we're doing that we just can't stop doing it wrong. And, of course, whether the decision was well-reasoned. Now, of course, that's one of the things that, that Lincoln talked about. He said, yeah, you know, we should, we should give respect to precedent. If it's really well-reasoned, we might say, yeah, I, I think that's the right interpretation. But if you'll remember, he said, but if it's wrong, then we can't just continue to adhere to it as if it has set the law or the policy of the whole people. Otherwise, we will have resigned our government into the hands of that eminent tribunal, which is, of course, exactly what we've done by treating their decisions as if they're God and as if they're law for everybody. But let's keep moving on. He's pretty well established here, Clarence Thomas, that we're actually making policy decisions here. And we're weighing all these factors other than the factor, were we right or were we wrong in the way we interpreted these words that have been fixed since 1789. Now remember again last week, we talked about the importance of the fixity of the meaning of words if we're going to have a coherent succession of this covenant that's called the Constitution from one generation to the next. And of course, we talked about that last week. The court just infuses new meaning into words all the time. And now they're even substituting the word freedom for the word liberty and, and the common law meaning of the word liberty. Oh, my, 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 friends. Now, he does say this. Even with respect to the factor, was the decision well-reasoned? He says this. The influence of this last factor was the decision, you know, last week or three weeks ago or three years ago or 30 years ago. Was it well-reasoned? He says that tends to ebb and flow with the court's desire to achieve a particular end. <laughs> Talk about the ends justify the means. And the court may cite additional ad hoc factors to reinforce the result it chooses. Now, see, that's exactly what they did in Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1992. If you'll recall, in 1973, the court said in Roe that the right to abortion was based on a right to privacy. And the Supreme Court in Planned Parenthood versus Casey said, well, there was a central premise here. 
Uh, there isn't actually a right to privacy, and that word's not in there. And if there was a right to privacy, there could be no government whatsoever. We'd all claim a private right. But it's grounded in the word liberty in the 14th Amendment Due Process Clause. You see what Clarence Thomas is chastising his own colleagues for? And he goes on to say, with respect to this additional citation of authorities and add-out factors, he says, but the shared theme in this whole thing is the need for a special reason over and above the belief that a prior case was wrongly decided to overrule a precedent. In other words, it's not enough to admit and to realize we were wrong. And you know what case he cites for that and quotes from it, the idea of the special reason over and above the belief the case was wrong? Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1992. But the court, he says, advances this view on the ground that, subquote within the quote, it promotes the even-handed, predictable, and consistent development of legal principles, and, quote, contributes to the actual and perceived integrity of the judicial powers. Now, what is he saying there in that mumbo-jumbo, the word Senator Blumenthal used to talk about stare decisis? Well, he's using the idea there of, of common law, even-handed, predictable, consistent development of legal principles. Well, that's not what the court's doing with an interpretation of fixed words in a statute or constitution. They're not developing legal principles. There's a law. It, it says ABC. It uses these words. Well, what do those words mean? That's what the statute means. This is not like common law. That's why I said at the top of the show with the quote that he used, stare decisis does not fit with what we now do under the judicial power that's in the Constitution. It's not the same. It's not equivalent to the doctrine of stare decisis at common law. And that last statement that he makes, the reason that we've advanced this view of stare decisis, you'll remember he just said, contributes to the actual and perceived integrity of the judicial process. In other words, we want everybody to think that we're always right. So we're going to develop a doctrine that allows us to continue saying the same thing we've said, even though it was wrong, so that everybody will think we were right and that we have integrity in our decisions and we're not just changing it because, well, we now have a, a new, different selection of judges on the Supreme Court. Oh, my, 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 my friends. What corruption in the highest tribunal of our land. And thank God for Clarence Thomas to call it out and to point us to a way forward to what we can actually go to in our history, in our traditions, and in our Constitution to rebuke and exercise from our Constitution all the wrongheadedness that's been taking place over the last 40 years or so. He goes on to say this, and this is, this is especially damning. Federal courts today look to different sources of law when exercising the judicial power than did the common law courts of England. Okay, sources of law. He's talking about here the source of the law in the common law was history and tradition and natural law and revelation, whereas now we have words on a piece of paper. He goes on to say the court has long held that and he's quoting here within his quote, 
There is no federal general common law. There, he says it. There isn't any common law, so a doctrine derived from, important to, common law doesn't apply. He goes on to really say that, and let me quote it to you. Instead, he says, the federal courts primarily in interpret apply three bodies of federal positive law. Positive law is not the same as common law. Positive law is enacted law, written down on a piece of paper with words that mean something at the time they're written. And he says what they are, constitutions, federal statutes, rules and regulations, and treaties. Well, that just parallels the supremacy clause, doesn't it? The Constitution, the laws of Congress, and treaties. And then he makes this statement, that the fact that we are trying to interpret and apply three bodies of federal positive law, not state common law, not common law, he said that removes most, if not all, of the force that stare decisis held in the English common law system, where judicial precedents were among the only documents identifying the governing customs or rules and maxims. In other words, we don't need to look at these customs, rules, and maxims except to understand what the words of the Constitution meant at the time they were written. He goes on to say, quote, we operate in a system of written laws in which courts need not and generally cannot articulate the law in the first instance. What did he just say right there? He said, essentially, we generally cannot articulate the law. We do not make law. We exercise judgment to resolve disputes in particular cases and controversies involving an already existing positive statement of law and written words that had meaning at the time they were written. That's all we do. And thus he says, quote, our judicial task is modest. We interpret and apply written law to the facts of particular cases. Well, our time has flown by today, and uh, I'm not going to be able to reach the, the point of what changed between what Clarence Thomas is talking about and I've been talking about and what the court is now doing. But we're going to pick that up next week for sure. So tune in next week to God, Law, and Liberty, and you'll get a better feel for what the Supreme Court did to begin to destroy the United States Constitution. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.